Well, good morning, church. My name is Matt Davidson, and I'm the student ministry leader here at the Hub City Church. And before we dive into God's word, I just have a couple announcements for us. Um, The first is that we wanted to celebrate, like Dallas said, the Thanksgiving outreach that just went so well. Um, Church, I wanted to thank you uh, for coming together to serve people um, and strive for the gospel to go forth. Uh, There was plenty of food to give to Northwood. Um, for that outreach. And then when we went downtown for the outreach on Wednesday, um, for the first time since like 2018, we served all of the food. Like that hasn't happened in years. So praise God for like what he's doing in there. And man, because we served all the meals, something greater actually happened. We had many opportunities to share the gospel. And so by God's grace, people heard of his love for them on Wednesday. So, So praise him for that. Um, Also, the outreach at the manor on Thursday went so well. It was super sweet to see how happy the residents were uh, that we were there. And man, more gospel conversations happened, which is, like I've said, that's what it's all about, uh, ultimately. So to serve and care for people um, and show the love of Christ to them by serving, but then also share the love of Christ with them by telling them the gospel. So Um, It just all went so well. So the second announcement that we have is the uh, Feed the Fosters outreach, like Dallas had talked about. That's going to be on December 9th. Uh, For more info on that, you can stop by the uh, connection desk. There's more info, and then there's a sign-up sheet there for that if you're interested. Um, The last announcement we have is that our holiday schedule is now posted, so there's there's lots of events coming up over the next month or so. Uh, We'd love for you guys to be a part of that if you'd like to, so feel free to check that out. Um, Well, today we're going to be closing out our series uh, that we've been going through that's titled That's Messed Up, a series about sin and redemption in Genesis. Now, typically we preach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible, but in the series of That's Messed Up, we've been examining messed up situations that are the result of sin and then looking at the redemption that's found in the gospel. And today we're going to look at the life of Joseph. And I don't think that God's timing for this sermon being right after Thanksgiving is a mistake, because I think that through the life of Joseph, we can actually see many reasons why we can give Thanksgiving in any circumstance. I'm not talking about the reason of the traditional holiday of Thanksgiving. I'm talking about a Thanksgiving or a gratitude towards God, because I personally believe that through Joseph's life, God wants to show us why and how We should give thanks in every circumstance. And I know that might be a really hard statement for some. And I want to be very delicate about that difficulty this morning. Because my aim and my hope is that maybe even if it's for the first time, you might see Thanksgiving as more than just a holiday season. And instead, you might see a reason for Thanksgiving towards God in all circumstances, even the bad ones. That's my hope and that's my prayer this morning, which is why I've titled this sermon, Suffering and Thanksgiving. So in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I wanted us to go back and see what Thanksgiving really looks like throughout history. If we go back to 1621, we'll find that American pilgrims held a feast after they basically gathered all their crops that the land produced. This feast was basically a thanksgiving to God because they believed God provided all of the crops. And so in 1621, the pilgrims invited a tribe of Indians to feast with them. And this is what's traditionally known as the origin of Thanksgiving. But this feast is really only part of the story. Because in 1789, President George Washington designated a national public day 
of thanksgiving. And in his proclamation in 1789, he said this, it is the duty of nations to acknowledge the providence or provision of Almighty God, to obey his will and to be grateful for his benefits, and that the day would be devoted to the service of that great and glorious being who's the author of all good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may give unto him our sincere and humble thanks. Now, that original reason sounds pretty different to me than many of the things that I hear today. The things I hear today are hashtag grateful, hashtag thankful, or hashtag too blessed to be stressed with number twos for the word twos every time, right? And oftentimes I've heard these things referring to prosperity as the reason for being thankful. In other words, the circumstance is what seems to dictate how much thankfulness there is. Church, I think if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. Our gratitudes towards God can sometimes depend whether our circumstance is good or not. Even if we just think about George Washington's proclamation, it seems like this season was supposed to be more about thankfulness for the goodness of God rather than the goodness of a circumstance. What if we go back even further in 1789? Say we go back to about 50 AD, which is when scholars think that Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, which is where he instructs the church to give thanks in all circumstances. Like, wait, what? Give thanks in all circumstances? Every circumstance? Like, even terrible ones? What about losing a job or financial hardship hitting? This war that's going on between Israel and Hamas. What about painful and broken relationships? The loss of a loved one? The news of cancer or another medical diagnosis? What about a 20-something-year-old sprinkling their mother ashes over a grave? Is the Bible really telling us to give thanks in all circumstances? Like even those ones? Well, as challenging as that concept can be, I really hope this morning that God would show you why and how we should give thanks in all those circumstances, even those bad ones. So let's go ahead and pray. God, you are far too great and marvelous and wonderful for me to fully understand. Your ways are far better than I can ever comprehend, and I cannot communicate how great you are on my own. So God, speak through me. I cannot speak clearly enough about suffering and your goodness so that people would see you and still trust you as good. So God, increase in this place and in this moment specifically, God, increase in me and that I would decrease so that people would see your greatness and goodness even in light of suffering. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, and keep a place there with a marker or a finger or something, um, and then go to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 as well. Those are going to be our two main texts this morning, but we're going to get there in a minute, so just hold a place in both those spots. Um, we're going to look at the life of Joseph first, because the life of Joseph actually spreads throughout Genesis chapters 37 through 50, so it's a lot of chapters. So rather than me just reading all of that, and then praying and stepping off stage without any application, I'm just going to summarize Joseph's life for you this morning, and hopefully that gives us this overarching picture of different seasons and circumstances that Joseph went through that we can learn from. 
So the story of Joseph really begins in Genesis chapter 37, where he's 17 years old, and he's got many brothers. To remind you, this is the family of dysfunction that Tad walked us through a few weeks ago with these birthing battles between Rachel and Leah. So this family already had much rivalry in it. And these brothers came from four different mothers. So there's like reality to the statement, brother from another mother in this family, okay? We see that in this rivalry between them, okay? Joseph's father loves Joseph more than all of his brothers. So Joseph's brothers hate him for that. So one day they take him and they throw him into a pit. And as his brothers have him in this pit, they're conspiring and feeling like they shouldn't leave him there, so they decide to sell him instead. So a group of traders happens to be passing by, and his brothers get him out of this pit, and they sell him to these traders. And after all this, Joseph's brothers basically try to cover up what they just did by taking his robe, killing a goat, and putting the blood on it, and then they go home and show the robe to their father, and they let their father assume that Joseph was just killed by an animal. Then in Genesis chapter 9, we see that Joseph is taken into Egypt, and he's sold again to someone named Potiphar this time. And Genesis 39 tells us, though, that the Lord was with Joseph during this time, and the Lord made Joseph's plans succeed. even tells us that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph, which led to Potiphar making Joseph basically an overseer of his own house. But Potiphar's wife, during this time, sets her eyes on Joseph. So she tries to seduce Joseph to sleep with her. And every time, Joseph refuses. One day, Potiphar's wife has a hold of Joseph by his garment, and she again tries to seduce him. But he refuses, and this time he gets away so quickly that he left his garment in her hand. He runs out of the house, fleeing this temptation. But Potiphar's wife then lies about Joseph. Using this garment as fake evidence to basically accuse Joseph of sexual assault. Potiphar hears of this, he gets angry, so he throws Joseph in prison for something that he didn't even do. Like, pretty messed up, right? But God's word tells us that even though, even while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was still with him. And God gave Joseph favor with the keeper of the prison, and he was put in charge of all the prisoners. And meanwhile, there's this cupbearer and baker for the Pharaoh who commit offenses, and so they're imprisoned in the same prison that Joseph's in. These two prisoners actually come under Joseph's watch, and then one night, both the cupbearer and the baker have a dream. So Joseph learns of these dreams, and God gives Joseph the interpretation for these dreams. So Joseph tells them that the dreams basically mean the cupbearer is going to be restored back to his job, and the baker is going to be killed. So Joseph just asks the cupbearer one thing after he gives them the interpretation of these dreams. He basically says, remember me and mention me to Pharaoh so that I get out of this prison. He basically says, I've done nothing wrong when my brothers put me in that pit, and I've done nothing wrong to be put in this pit of prison. So a few days later, these dreams actually come true. The cupbearer is restored, and the baker is put to death. But then Genesis chapter 40, the end of it, tells us that the cupbearer did not remember Joseph. So the beginning of the next chapter tells us that two years go by, and Joseph is still in prison. And Pharaoh has a dream where out of the Nile River came seven attractive cows, and then seven ugly cows come up out of the water and eat the good-looking cows. Pharaoh had another dream. Seven heads of grain that were good were growing, and they, they basically are taken by bad heads of grain. They're swallowed up. So Pharaoh gets all the wise men and magicians that he can and tells them about this dream, but nobody can discern what the dream is. 
And that's when the cupbearer remembers that Joseph, uh, what he had basically asked him a couple years ago. Cupbearer tells Pharaoh that Joseph interpreted dreams that came true for the cupbearer in the baker in prison. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph to interpret these dreams. Joseph tells Pharaoh what these dreams mean, that seven good cows represent seven good years, seven bad cows are seven bad years. Likewise, the seven good heads of grain and bad heads of grain. So Joseph tells Pharaoh, these seven good years are going to be years of plenty, plenty in Egypt. But after the good years, there's going to come a famine. So Joseph tells Pharaoh that Pharaoh needs to set a discerning and wise man over the land, that he should have an overseer over the land that's going to take a portion of the produce from the good years to use as a reserve during the bad years, during the famine. So Joseph, or Pharaoh actually likes Joseph's plan here, and he basically says that, I can see God in you, Joseph. And so uh, Pharaoh makes Joseph second to himself under the Pharaoh. So, so Joseph goes from being imprisoned for false accusations to second in command, only behind the Pharaoh. And then just like God said, the seven years of plenty happen. The seven years of famine take place as well. And so now through the life of Joseph, we see a lot of suffering, don't we? I mean, we see multiple times where just bad things happen to him that put him in this place of suffering. It's kind of outside of his control. Think about how Joseph was 17 when all this started. And then he's imprisoned, and then he's just forgotten about for two whole years in prison. He's, He's 30 by the time that these circumstances work out for good for him. That's 13 years of suffering. It's a prolonged time of suffering. I mean, when I think about my own life, how quick am I to despair and think that everything's falling apart after like one bad thing? But in Joseph's life, a huge portion was suffering. I think God wants to show us why and how we can give thanks even through prolonged periods of suffering, as opposed to grumbling or despairing after one bad circumstance. This is a challenging concept, isn't it? Especially with a world with all sorts of pain and suffering and brokenness and death, disease, poverty, hatred and cruelty, war and violence. I mean, it might even lead us to wonder why, God? Why is there all of this suffering? Why 13 years of suffering in Joseph's life? Let's keep looking at Joseph's life, and I think that God wants to show us something through that. So the famine basically strikes the land, and it's so severe over all the earth, the scriptures tell us, which means even the area where Joseph's family was gets hit by this famine. So Joseph's family actually catches word that Egypt has grain for sale. So Joseph's father sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt. And Genesis 42 tells us that Joseph is the one who's basically overselling all the grain to people. So Joseph's brothers get to Egypt, and Joseph recognizes them But they don't recognize him. So Joseph eventually reveals himself to his brothers and then tells them not to be angry with themselves for selling Joseph into slavery. What? Why? How can Joseph say that after what they did to him? After the bad circumstances they just put him through? Genesis chapter 45 begins to tell us. Joseph tells his brothers that even though they sold him into slavery, into Egypt, God was ultimately the one who sent Joseph there. And that God did it in order that Joseph might preserve life. What Joseph is saying here is that, yes, a bunch of bad things happened, but they were for the purpose of something greater. 
They were for the ultimate purpose of preserving life. And later on in the book of Genesis chapter 50, we see a peak explanation from Joseph uh, for why he thinks he suffered all that he did. So let's read that together. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers here. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Man, so to me, it seems like this verse is trying to give the answer to the following question. Why should we give thanks in all circumstances? Like even the worst ones. I think it's saying that we can give thanks in all circumstances because of your first point here in your notes. Because even what only looks evil to us, God means to use it for good. I mean, imagine how wronged Joseph felt after being betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, forgotten about in prison. But yet, after all of that suffering that he endures, he looks back on it and says, even what was meant for evil in this world, God actually meant it for good. He's saying that even what looks evil from our perspective, it's ultimately for good. And this creates what some might call a a theological and philosophical hurdle, right? There's this existence of evil and suffering, but then the Bible is telling us that there's an all-powerful, all-loving, and all-good God. So the dilemma can be, how can both of these things be true at the same time? Why would a good God allow all of this misery in the world? Wouldn't that mean that he isn't either all-powerful enough to stop the evil or that he isn't all-loving and all-good enough to take it away? And to address this dilemma that some might have, I want to give us three categories to consider this morning that maybe we'll identify with. I want to say I'm not trying to be judgmental with these categories or put labels on anybody in this room. Rather, I'm just hoping that we can relate to one or more of these and that that would help us wrestle through this dilemma So I also want to be clear, regardless of which category you find yourself in this morning, you're loved here, and we're glad that you're here, and I want you here. I personally believe the God of this book is all-loving, and he's all-good, and I just believe that our greatest hope can be found only in him, and so I want you to have that hope. I'm not being judgmental with these categories. I just hope that they're helpful. So the first category that I want you to think about is if you feel skeptical about God whether you're not maybe even sure if there is a God. Or if there is a God, then maybe you're skeptical if it's the God of the Bible. That's the first category. The second category is maybe you relate to being a struggler with doubt. Like maybe you want to believe the God of the Bible, that he's God, but you're just struggling to trust him as good because of all this suffering that you see in the world. The third and final category is maybe you relate most to being a saint this morning because you know that you're saved by Christ. Take a moment to think about which one you relate to before we dive in deeper. Skeptical of God, struggler with doubt in the God of the Bible, or a saint who knows that they're saved only by the blood of Jesus. Now, if you feel like you're the skeptic or the struggler this morning, I want to plea with you about what the gospel is. And if you relate most to being a saint this morning, then hear how the gospel addresses this dilemma of suffering in a good God. 
He said, I personally believe that the gospel is the greatest and best news for anyone that would hear it. And the gospel is that we've all sinned and we live in this world that's broken because it's damaged by sin. We've all chosen to go our own way against God, the God who created us and who loves us. But God shows his love for us and that even while we're still turning from him and choosing our sin, he still sent Christ, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect and sinless life on this earth. And even though he did nothing wrong to deserve death, he was killed on a cross. While he was on that cross, he took on the punishment for sin that should have been coming for us. But yet he rose again so that for those who would trust in him as their savior from the punishment that their sin deserves, those who would trust in him as their king whom they're living for, and those who trust in his resurrection that they too will be raised, they will have an eternity with him and no more suffering and no more sin. They get to be with him forever. Amen. So I bring this plea to the, the skeptic and the struggler because I want us to consider a few things for just a moment. This message of the gospel that God wants to declare to you is that Christ, who is God himself, suffered not only a brutal physical death, but he also suffered the worst spiritual agony ever when he took on the punishment for our sin. Get this, Jesus the Son suffered on the cross so that you don't have to suffer forever. The gospel message is that Jesus was fully God, so he had a perfect relationship with God the Father. But in the moment on the cross, in the moment of the punishment for our sin being poured out onto him, that perfect relationship that Jesus had with God the Father was momentarily cut off. That's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And since Jesus had a perfect relationship with God the Father, this was the most agonizing part of the cross. He suffered the momentary loss of his dearest relationship. The Bible tells us that he suffered that loss, though, out of love for you and for me. He suffered that loss for the moment so that we don't have to suffer for an eternity when we trust in God. So what if all of this suffering in this world is allowed by God because he wants us to see that there's greater suffering that can happen to us than what we're going to find in this world? What if he's trying to tell us that we can suffer from an eternity apart from him unless we place our faith in Christ, who suffered that consequence on our behalf? One actor who openly claims to actually be pagan said this, early tragedy made me see that you just don't have forever. But I would want to tell you and that actor if I could, I believe that you do have a forever. It's just a matter of which eternity that you're going to have. So what if he allows all this suffering so we could ask the questions, what happens after I die? And is there more to this life than all of this pain and suffering? Because when you ask those kinds of questions, that's where the gospel is the sweetest and it shines the most. So if you think about how God, the God of the Bible might be trying to answer the, the question of how can there be suffering in this world and how can you still be a good God and all loving and all powerful, all good, his answer to you might be, what if I allow it so that when you see the suffering that's in this world and then you hear the sweet message of the gospel, that you would believe my gospel, that my son Jesus suffered in your place so that you don't have to suffer in a worse place 
forever. Tim Keller, who's a a modern-day pastor, theologian, said this about suffering. Just because we can't imagine or see a good reason why God would allow suffering does not mean that there isn't one. Even if our minds can't understand the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be any. He cautions us, if we think that way, then we're putting an enormous amount of trust in our own cognitive abilities. I know that statement might sound harsh, but think about it for a second. In a world with over 8 billion people, we are like a speck on this planet. The Bible tells us that God is the creator of the entire universe. Like this, in a universe that's this big, we can't even understand it. Are we going to trust that we know better than God, who created something that's far beyond our understanding? Are we really going to believe that God can't have a good reason for suffering just because we can't see one? I want to plead with you all, please do not write the God of the Bible off in his gospel message just because you see evil and suffering in this world. Don't write God off for that. For those that are maybe relate to the category of a saint who's saved by the blood of Jesus, let me remind you of what our command is in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Turn there with me. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so for those who would say that they are saints saved by Jesus, our command is to give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will for us. That's what he desires for us. Which leads us to the next question that I want us to begin thinking about. Why should we give thanks specifically in the hard times? And one of the hard times from Joseph's life that I want to unpack is when he's under temptation from Potiphar's wife where sin was literally crouching at his door. Sin literally had a hold of Joseph. He's on a battlefield of having to choose between the passions of his flesh and purity for God. So even in a hard circumstance like temptation, why should we give thanks? Because temptation is an opportunity for our growth in glorifying God. Temptation is an opportunity for our growth in glorifying God. While we are in the hour of temptation and we sense in our hearts this desire rising up for anger or pride or lust or coveting what others might have, and when that moment gets hard, why give thanks even in that circumstance? I mean, the hour of temptation is still a circumstance, right? Well, whether we view that this way or not, temptation is actually an opportunity for growth because we can give thanks in this hour of temptation because God views it as something that's refining us. You see, when Joseph runs away from Potiphar's wife, the word fled is used in Genesis chapter 39, verse 12. It says that Joseph fled away from her. And this word in one of the original languages of the Bible, it actually means to run away from something by seeking shelter in something else. In other words, fled can mean that you run away from sin in order to seek shelter and safety in God. So we can give thanks in the circumstance of temptation because temptation is actually an opportunity to grow in saying no to sin and saying yes to God. It's an opportunity to say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin 
and say yes to superior worship and enjoyment in God. And like a muscle that grows bigger when it gets worked out, we grow and we when we train in fleeing and fighting temptations to sin. We don't just grow for no reason. We grow in glorifying God more because we glorify him when we choose him over our sin. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 tells us this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is telling us, which I would, basically that trials, and I would say that the trial of temptation is still a trial. It's actually growing us and maturing us, that we're not lacking in anything as we grow in glorifying Christ. So there's a reason why we can give thanks in even a hard circumstance like temptation. So also for those that would call themselves saints, why should we give thanks in the bad times? The next question I want us to think about. In Joseph's life, we see some really bad times, don't we? I mean, like I said, suffering in slavery, suffering in prison, suffering for people during the famine. So why do we give thanks in even bad times like that? Because suffering produces our endurance and our character, which ultimately produces our hope. Christian, your suffering is not meaningless. The Bible promises that suffering is doing something in your life. I mean, even from a non-Christian worldview, I've heard people say that suffering makes their lives stronger, like the, the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger mentality. But even that concept falls short of a promise that you get to cling to as a believer in Christ. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. Verses two through four. Through him being Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and our endurance produces character and our character produces hope. Paul is basically telling us to not only rejoice in what Christ has done, but also rejoice in what suffering is doing in the Christian. We can cling to this promise that suffering is actually producing an endurance to help us endure the bad times. Which is what we see in Joseph's life, right? I mean, again, 13 years of suffering. So we can take heart and give thanks in the bad times of suffering because it's producing our endurance and our character and our maturity, which will ultimately produce our hope. And I'm going to come back to hope at the end, so just remember hope. But for now, let's go to our next circumstance to be thankful for. Why should we give thanks in the good times? Might sound like a dumb question, but I've got some reasons why. The first reason is because we need to remember that we don't make our plans succeed. God does. Numerous times in Joseph's life, we see that Joseph and others don't think that the good times are good because of what Joseph did. For example, when Joseph was sold to Potiphar, it says that the Lord caused Joseph to succeed with Potiphar. When Joseph was in prison, it says the prison keeper saw that whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. When Joseph is before Pharaoh, Pharaoh says that he sees the Spirit of God 
in Joseph and that God is the one who made Joseph wise and discerning. So church, we shouldn't give thanks in good circumstances because they're good and nothing bad is going on. We should give thanks in the good circumstances because we weren't the ones who made them good. We aren't the ones who make our plans succeed. So instead of thanking a circumstance, we should give thanks to the one who makes that circumstance good. That's God. Second reason why we should give thanks in the good times is because God wants to give the gift of life to all. God wants to give the gift of life to all. In Joseph's life, there's a key theme for why God meant all of the bad for good. That key theme that we see was that God wanted to preserve life. That's the reason that we see in Joseph's life twice, both in Genesis chapter 45, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and then also in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says multiple times that he now realizes the purpose of his suffering and how God meant it for good was actually to preserve life. So Christian, what if the only purpose that suffering serves in our lives is to get people, including ourselves, to have an urgency for the gospel in our own lives and in this world? Wouldn't that reason be enough for suffering to be understandable from God's point of view and for our suffering to be for a good reason? That it's actually out of love for people believing the gospel? If we think about Joseph's life just a little deeper, we actually see this truth embedded in his life. We see something that serves a bigger picture of salvation for all. I want you to think about how one of Joseph's brothers was named Judah. If we go to Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogy of Jesus, the family history of Jesus, we see that Jesus' genealogy actually goes back to Judah. So if Joseph had not been sold into slavery, Joseph wouldn't have gone to Egypt. Joseph wouldn't have saved his whole family from the famine, including Judah. If Joseph wouldn't have saved Judah from that famine, then church, we wouldn't have our Savior. So God's plan for Joseph's suffering went, went way beyond what even Joseph could have seen in his own lifetime. So who's to say that our suffering doesn't go beyond what even we can see, even if we never get to see the result or the good that comes from our suffering? What if it's preserving someone's life somewhere by giving them an eternity? Guys, this concept of, of God wanting to give life isn't just seen in Joseph's story. It's all throughout the pages of Scripture. Colossians chapter 1, for example, verses 9 through 14, Paul's instructing believers to give thanks to God in prayer. And one of the reasons that Paul gives for thanking God is because Jesus has saved us by transferring us from darkness and bringing us into light by the forgiveness of sins. Another example in Scripture is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 where we're told that God desires for all people to be saved. His heart is for all people to have life through the gospel. So just like Joseph's life where God orchestrated the good circumstances in order to give life to the world through the Savior, God ultimately wants to give life to all people through him. And he wants to use our lives for that same cause, church. Let's see the last reason why saints can give thanks in the good times. Because others may get to see the greatness and goodness of God. In Genesis chapter 41, when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, 
Pharaoh sees God's greatness and goodness in Joseph. Pharaoh sees that God is good in giving a warning to Egypt about this famine. Pharaoh also sees that God is great and powerful by giving this dream to Pharaoh and then giving the interpretation to Joseph. So church, even when the good times take place in our lives, we should give thanks to God, not the circumstance, because it might help people see how good God is. Philippians 2.15 tells us to do all things without grumbling or complaining, which the opposite of complaining in my mind would be to give thanks. And then later on in verse 15, Paul says that we shine as lights in this world. So get this, when we're thankful in all circumstances, and when we don't grumble or complain about our circumstances, we actually have an opportunity to shine as lights in this world so that others get to see how great and how good God is, just like Pharaoh saw in Joseph's life. But I want to challenge the believer with something. I want us to ask ourselves, do people really see how great and how good God is through how we respond to stuff? For example, does my wife really see that God is great by how I respond to situations? Do my kids see God's goodness Do the people that I work with see him? Does the person at the register that day see that God is good by how I'm not grumbling or complaining about my life? Honestly, I've been so convicted by this lately. Times that my wife and my kids and that person at the register, they see me grumbling or having a bad attitude where I'm not thankful for my present circumstance. It's convicting that that doesn't help that person see how great and how good God is. So church, let us consider our thanksgiving to God in all circumstances can make the difference on whether we shine as lights in this world so that others might see and know the greatness of our good God. But it leads us to the final question that we're going to cover of how. How do we actually do this? How do we give thanks in all these circumstances? How can we actually walk out of here and Give thanks in such a way that that people will see the goodness of God. The first thing that I want to direct us to is look through the lens that God does. Look through the lens that God does. Church, if we want to give thanks in all circumstances, we need to look at each circumstance that we're in the way that God is looking at it. Genesis 50, 20 told us that God meant for good what looked evil from an earthly perspective. So I think the first step to giving thanks in all circumstances would be viewing our situations from God's perspective, not our own perspective. We need to frame up each circumstance through the right lens. We need to view each time through the lens in the way that God wants us to view that time, not the way that we want to view that time. I mean, as I've been preparing this sermon, I found myself telling myself this very thing. I've been in a circumstance or whatever situation or trial that I've gone through lately. Just the other day, I saw my own heart, how ungrateful and how whiny I was being. And God reminded me, you know you're preaching a sermon on giving thanks in all circumstances, right? So my prayer before dinner that night was, God, help me to actually be thankful what I should be thankful for. Like I'm not lacking anything that I need. I have the joy of salvation in you. I have an eternity to look forward with you. 
I literally had to divert my attention away from the tough day. And in that moment, I had to look through the lens in which God sees everything. He said he's always working good for a good purpose, even though we might not see what that purpose is. He's always loving us and giving life to us or life to someone somewhere in this world. Church, the second thing that we really need to do to give thanks in all circumstances is we need to hold on to the hope of heaven. We need to hold on to the hope of heaven. Man, Romans 8.18 tells us this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's making a case here saying, whatever present circumstance you're in, even if it's suffering, it does not compare to the glory and the sweetness that eternity is going to be. An eternity with Christ. The main point The main thing that I want to point out of this verse is just one word, one word that we see. Paul uses the word consider at the beginning of that verse. Now, this word consider in the original Greek language means, or is logizome. Logizome. This word means to think about, meditate on, ponder, and reflect. Consider the truth of something. To to get this word into perspective, I read this cool note about this word, and that it deals with reality. And the example that was given in this book was, if I logizome, then my bank account has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. This word is referring to a fact as opposed to a theory or an opinion. So Paul is saying, I logizome, and I'm meditating on the fact that eternity with Christ is better than this present suffering. He's saying, I'm not only thinking about it and clinging to it, but I'm telling myself that the future reality of heaven with Christ, it's actually there. Like, I can actually have it one day. And that it's going to be better to be there with Christ than this present suffering. It's all going to be worth it. I don't even need to compare the two, because eternity with Christ will wipe away all of the earthly sufferings. I'm not even going to think about them anymore, because I'm going to be thinking of Christ where I'm worshiping him at his feet. The way that I could logizome or consider the $25 in my account, and it's actually there, I can logizome heaven and think about the promised reality with Christ that's going to surpass this present suffering. That is how we actually give thanks in all circumstances in the moment of our suffering. You logizome the hope of heaven as if it's actually there because it is, Christian, when you believe in Christ. Well, you may remember something that I said at the beginning of this sermon where I mentioned a 20-something-year-old who had to sprinkle, sprinkle their mother's ashes over a grave. And for those of you who don't know, that was actually me. Um, I wanted to share with you guys the, the love and the goodness of God, even in that terrible circumstance where my mom died. Even when there could have been many more years ahead of her, if that would have been God's will, that wasn't the case. My mom died on hospice after battling with cancer for years. And in all of that suffering for my mom and for us as a family, I saw God work out good in that suffering. Specifically, her suffering while she was on hospice, because 
It literally brought about the salvation of someone who's in this room this morning. That person here watched my mom's body wither away, watched her suffer, watched her die from cancer, but they were saved through that circumstance. I lost my mom in this world, but I gained a sibling in Christ forever. So church, let us consider how God is working good in even the worst circumstances in our lives. And let us logizome the heaven that's waiting for those who trust in Christ and that he's going to bring us there one day. Let's pray. God, you are good. Even when we cannot see it from our earthly perspective, God, you are working good. Even if it saves one soul that we never meet in our lifetime where we never see that soul saved, God, even the worst sufferings that we see in this world, you're working for your good purposes, God. Help us to trust that. Help us to, in the middle of suffering, hold on to the promises of heaven and how they will wipe away any earthly suffering that we're presently going through, have gone through, or will go through, all because of Christ. God, I pray for those souls that, that might not have that hope of heaven. God, would you do a miracle and help them to trust in you for salvation? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.